you guys know there were uh, plagues in Europe for years. Uh, you know when you hear about the Black Death or bubonic plague, plagues uh, ravaged Europe for at least a few hundred years. And in the plague of 1603, uh, about a third the population of London died. 38,000 people died of the plague in London in that year, 1603. And one of the observers of that plague, a guy who lived in that time, was John Dunn. Um, John Don, D-O-N-N-E is spelled, pronounced John Dunn. Uh, interesting character, if you get a chance to read his life, a biography, anything... Uh, a really profligate guy, totally committed to hedonism as a young man, and then totally redeemed and becomes the canon or deacon, I can't remember what the word is, of St. Paul's Cathedral in London towards the end of his life. Uh, Dunn wrote, he's considered a metaphysical poet, and he wrote a lot of poetry both in his youth and then later as a Christian. Uh, one of the poems uh, he's written, you may not have you may not have, know well, but you probably heard a couple lines out of it. And this poem was inspired by the plague and the death that resulted. So you can imagine if about one out of three people around you are dying, you're seeing death all the time. And part of that process was they get sick, they linger, they die, they go to church, they get buried. And of course, each time they go to church and the, the funeral procession would take off, the church bells would ring. And so this is what John Dunn wrote about. And this is what he said. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as any manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore... Never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Uh, Dunn sees all these people dying, and each time that funeral was preceded with the church bells ringing. And he said, don't bother asking what individual died. It is, in fact, in some significant sense, it's your funeral. You are the less for the death of that person, whether you knew them by name or not. No man is an island, John Dunn says. And that's the premise of the teaching this morning out of Genesis 9, 18 through 29, which is where, we'll, where we will hang our hat. But as you'll see in the passage this morning, this thought of Dunn, no man is an island entire by himself, is brought out in spades in this passage this morning. And you'll see that we are to others potentially a blessing or a curse and others are to us potentially a blessing or a curse and the passage we're in this morning is dealing about blessings and curse and the repercussions and the impact one person has on another genesis 9 18 through 29 by the way this is also uh, noah's swan song this is the end of the life of noah we've read about since the end of chapter 5 now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three, the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming, or in Hebrew, Noah was a man of the earth, and planted a vineyard. He drank of the, of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, and 
by the way, if you notice here, this is the second time in this story we're told that Ham is the father of Canaan, which tells us Canaan's probably going to be a part of this story. Uh, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And the Hebrew word for told can also mean proclaim or announce. So Ham tells his brothers, But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon both their shoulders, walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away, so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So remember, the flood's over, and life's kind of starting over, but we're getting off to a rocky start here. Briefly, the story, Noah plants a vineyard. He's a man of the earth, plants a vineyard, harvests the crop, makes wine, drinks it to excess, gets drunk, goes to his tent, takes his clothes off. And Ham sees this. The text doesn't say, it's not clear if it was humorous to him or whatever, but Ham sees the situation and proclaims the fact, Noah's state, drunken and naked in his tent, proclaims the fact to his brothers. Shem and Japheth walk backwards so they don't see their father in this shameful state, basically. And when Noah wakes up, we don't know how because the text doesn't tell us, but no one knows what has happened. And Noah understands that he's been treated badly by Ham. It's not just that Ham told. We understand there's some negative here, that he proclaimed it maybe in a mocking or teasing way to his brothers. And so Ham, or excuse me, so Noah speaks to curse and to bless based on this incident. So Noah speaks to curse, not Ham, but Ham's son Canaan and his descendants, and blesses Shem and Japheth and their descendants. And then it says, basically, and Noah lives 350 years, and he dies. We'll look at this passage in a few, few different points, starting with Noah's sin. <clears throat> Noah did sin. He got drunk. This is, the scripture says, don't get drunk. He got drunk. And think of this, uh, reflect back to Eden. You remember in Eden, the, the situation in the garden is God says, don't eat that fruit. And so Eve and Adam are tempted by the fruit. They see the fruit. They take the fruit, the forbidden fruit. They eat it. They sin. They become aware of their shame and their nakedness. So you've got fruit, sin, shame, and nakedness. And then you come to our story this morning and it's Noah takes fruit, not forbidden fruit, but fruit to excess. He gets drunk, sin. He experiences shame, and he's naked. It's the same elements, not, not exactly the same, but it's the same elements as the fall in the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> and I assume that God's basically saying to us, the same dynamic that was going on in the Garden of Eden is still going on after the flood. And you know what? It's not just going on. It's our hero that's doing it. You know, Noah, the one that, is, has God's grace and favor. And the guy who saves humanity by obeying God and building the ark, you remember? He's the guy that's sinning and experiencing shame 
and sin. And by the way, in the text also, of course, it ties Noah's death to the same story, doesn't it? It's 350 years after the flood, but the, the thought of Noah's death follows directly his sin and shame. So you've got these same common elements in Noah's story here that we had in the temptation and the fall account in Genesis 3. There's fruit, there's sin, there's shame, there's death. We've got exactly the same thing going on with Noah here. And it seems clear that basically what God's saying is the same kind of dynamics are going on after the flood that were going on before the flood. The same dynamics that were work bringing death to humanity are still at work after the flood with God's chosen man and with his descendants. So we, verse 19 tells us, are Noah's descendants. That's kind of a wild thought, isn't it? We're Noah's descendants. This is our grandfather. Uh, as his descendants, we, we are in this same thing. We're, we're born of a sinful father, just like Adam was our father before was sinful. We're, we're coming into the same dynamic, if you will. Temptation, sin, shame, and death. This, these are the dynamics we're still living with today. Uh, the responses to Noah's sin, this is one of the two things I want to focus on, the response to Noah's sin. Noah's sin, and there's shame and there's death. We've got that, and it's still going on after the flood, okay. But we've got two responses to that sin and shame here in the story. The first is Ham's, and the second is Shem and Japheth's. So in Ham's response, Ham sees the sin and the shame, and Ham kind of proclaims it, to the world around him, and maybe as a joke. I'm, I'm guessing that there's some negative that it's not just, did you see Dad? Because otherwise it wouldn't elicit this response from Noah. But Ham proclaims Noah's sin and failure and his nakedness. And then you've got Shem and Japheth, on the other hand, walking backwards and covering up Noah's nakedness, covering up his shame, as it were. And again... Go back to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sin and they realize they're naked and they feel ashamed, what does God do? Do you remember? He covers them up, right? He doesn't proclaim it. Now, there's nobody else around to proclaim it to at this point. But He doesn't proclaim their sin. What He does is He slays animals, right? Because it says He covers them with skins. He slays animals and he covers their sin and their nakedness. He gives them an adequate covering. They had tried to cover themselves, you remember, with leaves, entirely inadequate. But when God saw their sin and their shame, he came up and he covered that sin and shame for them. And in this story this morning, you see Shem and Japheth doing the same thing that God did for Adam and Eve, Shem and Japheth do for Noah in this story. They don't mock their dad. They don't proclaim his failure to the world around them. They do what they can not to even see his shame, but to cover it up for him. They show him respect and honor, and they do what they can to cover up his sin and shame. And that leads me to this question for myself and for us. What do we do when we're aware of others' failures, their sin, and their shame? Uh, are we like Ham? Do we take delight in proclaiming to the world someone else's failure? You know, if you read the newspapers or if you listen to television today, we are a culture 
that is uh, given over almost entirely to gossip, to what is the worst thing that we can know about someone else? What is the worst thing that we can tell about someone else? We make light of this on television shows. We expose our shame. We proclaim our shame and the shame of others on TV. This is considered entertainment in the culture around us. When we find out, when we become aware of someone else's moral failure, what do we do with that? Do we proclaim it like Ham and get some kind of delight out of doing that? Or do we, in the ways we're able to, and they may be limited or few or none, depending on our relationship with the person, do we act like God in the Garden of Eden do we act like Shem and Japheth here with Noah? Do we do what's in our power to cover the sin and the shame? And cover not in a negative sense, but do we do what we can to cover up or make restitution or atone for, so to speak, the failure that's been committed? Now, this is a big deal. Our communication about others to others, it's a big deal. Do we take delight in revealing the shame and the failure of others? Or do we do what we can to cover their sin or their failure? Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Love covers transgressions. Proverbs 17, 9 says, He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. Here, when it conceals transgression, the thought is not, that we're deceitfully hiding something, but that we're keeping something under wraps that if it were revealed would separate otherwise intimate friends. We're, we're doing what we can to cover a sin or a failure appropriately so that we minimize failure, so that we minimize destruction. Or think about Matthew 18. In the passage when Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and reprove him, and if he repents, you've won your brother. It's a sin that a person is aware of and rather than tell everyone else around them about that failure, they're called to go to the person they know is, is guilty of whatever that is and call them to repentance. It's the opposite of what Ham did. It's not telling... And by the way, this is what most of us do is we tell everyone else except the person, don't we? We, we practice the opposite of what the Scripture calls us to. But in Matthew 18, if your brother sins, go and reprove him. It's just you and your brother. No one else is involved. It's not proclaimed to anyone. And it says, if you win your brother, that's great. And then if he doesn't listen to you, go and tell it to two or three people. And there's two thoughts here. Two or three people are witnesses of the truth of the issue at hand. And that's a biblical measure to validate a fact. Two or three witnesses. But also it brings the, the, the exhortation, if you will, of a plural group to that person. But you see, in Matthew 18, the sin is, it's, we're called to confront it, but not to proclaim it. And the thought in Matthew 18 is always restoration. Your brother's restoration is what's at stake there. And if you go to Galatians 6, 1, when it says, if your brother sins, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restoration is what you're after. In a spirit of gentleness. And, you know, it goes on to say, you know, watching for yourselves as well, you may end up doing the same thing. But restoration is the goal there. So in Ham's response to Noah's sin and shame, you've got a guy who proclaims it to the world. Shem and Japheth come in and they cover it up. They're just like God in the garden. 
And they're doing the things the rest of the scripture calls us to do. They were seeking to bring restoration, to minimize the harmful impact or fallout of Noah's sin. That's what we're called to do as well. I might say here, there are times and situations which you might be made aware of in which you would have to go and tell someone else, hey, there's a situation you need to know about. Uh, people's safety could be at stake. You know what I'm saying? Situations where you're not proclaiming someone's failure, you may be responsible to inform other people that they need to be aware of something for their sake. Um, if uh, abuse was going on in a household, uh, to inform uh, the authorities would be an appropriate thing. I don't mean that this is all the time, but I think the times in which we have to tell others is probably the exception to the rule, and that the rule, the general norm would be that we are called to do what Shem and Japheth did, cover sin as we're able to, act like God did in the Garden of Eden. Uh, the place I want to hang our hat with uh, the rest of the time here is uh, has to do with fairness and justice. And tell me, did, did you notice in this story how unfair Noah was? Did you catch that? Who is it that shames Noah or acts shamefully towards Noah's shame? Who is it that acts shamefully towards Noah? It's his son Ham, right? So then when Noah gets up and he pronounces a judgment or a curse, who does he curse? It's not Ham. It's Ham's son Canaan. What's with that? The story does not tell us any more at this point than that Canaan is Ham's son. That's all it tells us. Now, if you read commentaries, you'll hear a variety of opinions, um, all of which are fairly lightweight arguments. Uh, things like, somehow Canaan was involved with what was going on. Or Canaan was just like Ham, his father, and so the pronouncement on Canaan would have been the same as if it was on Ham. You know, the problem with these things is it's not what the story says. If you've got to read something in, then you know, give up that line of reasoning. The story tells us what we need to know. And all it tells us is that Ham was the guy who did the deed and Noah pronounces a judgment against Ham's son, Canaan. That is what it says. That is what happened. Is that fair? By the way, before I forget, this judgment uh, that Canaan and his descendants would be the servants of Shem and Japheth. And do you remember later when Israel uh, takes the city of Jebus called Jerusalem, they put the Jebusites to forced labor, and the Jebusites are the descendants of Canaan. So at least in part, this pronouncement by Noah against Canaan and his descendants was at least in part affected a long, long time later when David comes in to the city of Jerusalem. So... What we know for sure is Ham sins and Canaan is judged. And I'm left asking myself, what's with this? It looks unfair to me. It looks unjust to me. Now, we might just say, these are the words of, of an irate father. These are Noah's words and he's ticked. And so it's just Noah and he's speaking out of hand. And the problem I would have with that is this, that this, in fact, is more than Noah's irate words because this this is a prophetic utterance of the condition of Shem, Ham, and Japheth's future generations. Do you know, if I get mad and I say something to you, uh, it's words to the wind. It, it, those words have no power in, them, in themselves. What Noah pronounces here is a judgment by God. 
And it's a curse against Canaan and his descendants. And it's a blessing for Shem and Japheth and their descendants. It's both. It goes both ways here. And I'm left asking myself, is this fair? Is this just? Is this right? Is God fair? Now, Canaan gets the negative, the judgment, because of his father. The descendants of Shem and Japheth get the positive blessing because of their father. Just remember, this, this cuts both ways. And I'm left asking myself, is this fair? And how do I know if it's fair or right? And here's some thoughts on fair. First is this. You know, we are sinful people with minds affected by deficient thinking. So I think it's possible that we could see God do something. And it could be just and fair and right, and we could think it wasn't. Does that make sense? That our thoughts could wrongly appraise either life as it is or life as God chooses to deal with it. We could get that wrong because we're deficient people with deficient thoughts. I think because of this, we have to be very careful about assuming our judgments are right judgments. We have to be very careful when we think we've assessed a situation, we know what God's thoughts on it are. I think we need to be very careful. I think we need to cut ourselves less slack uh, and be more careful on assessing things specifically when we come to infer motive or judgment about God Himself. So is God fair, number one? Well, God could be fair and we could get it wrong. That's a possibility, and I think it's something that happens fairly regularly. In fact, it's one of the reasons the world looks at God and, you know, God couldn't be a loving God and allow these things to go on. It's a judgment against God. It's a false judgment. But from the world's perspective, it makes sense, but it's off, off base. Second thing about fair is this. Typically, when we say fair, we mean something like this. Everyone gets the same thing. Or everyone at least has the same opportunity. That, that it's a fair playing field, so to speak. That even if ends aren't uh, guaranteed, we have equal opportunity, so to speak. If that's a description of fair, then God is supremely unfair, isn't He? God is supremely unfair. Because God does not give everyone the same things. And God does not give everyone the same opportunities, guaranteed, either in the Scriptures or in life. And think about this for just a minute. Uh, in this room, some of us in this room have more money than others in this room, don't we? Make more money. We'll always make more money than others in this room, right? Well, is that fair? Is it fair that some of us have more money than others have? Is it fair that some of us have less money than others have? Is that fair? How about this? Some of us in this room are smarter than others, right? Some of us are less smart, intellectually astute than others, right? Is that fair? We don't always all have the same capacity to think and to discern and to learn. We don't. No doubt about it. We don't. Is that fair? Uh, some of us in this room are more attractive physically than others. I mean, if we did, you know, if we line up, somebody say, yeah, she's really pretty. He's really handsome. She's okay. He's a little overweight, you know, whatever. But because of our physical appearance, some of us will have an easier time in, in life, won't we? We'll be more readily accepted by others if we're prettier or more handsome, won't we? Or we won't. Is that fair? You see where I'm going with this? Life's not fair at all. Inherently not fair. How about this? Jump from this room 
How about this? Uh, in the United States, let's say, and in the West in general, Christians uh, live lives of relative affluence, ease, peace. Life's pretty good. We're fat and sassy, so to speak, right? But if you're a Christian in China, parts of China, India, Middle East, Africa, and you're a Christian, uh, lands are seized, churches are burned, you're imprisoned, you're murdered. This is normal. So that's what they get in this life as Christians, and this is what we get in life as Christians? Is that fair? It's inherently not fair. No way. Not by the, not by the way we use the term fair. And I would argue that God is supremely unfair by the way we use the term typically. Now we might say, well, God just allows those things in the world. What about this? 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 talks about Christians receiving spiritual gifts, uh, spiritual abilities to carry on Christ's work in the earth. And those passages say that the Holy Spirit gives gifts as it pleases Him, and He says that some gifts are greater than other gifts. Some gifts are greater, some gifts are lesser. So the Holy Spirit gives some people greater gifts than He gives others. That has nothing to do with what's going on in the world. That has nothing to do with sin and death in the world. Is God fair? No, He's not. God is not fair the way we generally count the term fair. Not at all. Isn't, wasn't, won't be. God's not fair in the way we use the term. Having said that, God is just and He's righteous. God, by His nature, God cannot do anything that's not righteous or just. Not talking about fair now, the way we use the term fair, meaning we get the same thing, we have the same opportunity. But God is never unrighteous. God is never unjust because He can't be. He is holy entirely. He's righteous entirely. So everything God does is righteous and good. Nothing He does is unrighteous or unjust, or ultimately unfair if we use fair to mean righteous and just also. So, if I'm looking at a situation that I think is unfair and God's behind it and I know God is righteous, true, and just, then clearly I've got to have some way of connecting those two points, don't I? Noah and God through Noah pronounces a curse on Canaan, Ham's son, not the guy who did the deed. God through Noah pronounces blessings on the descendants of Shem and Japheth for things they didn't do, but their fathers did. That is, showed honor to Noah. How do we connect the dots? What's this thing about, I get what I didn't earn specifically? I think we need to enlarge our understanding both of fairness and of this. This is part of the deal. And by the way, I realize I'm raising an issue that I think maybe you'll go home and you'll think Mike's totally off base. That's okay. Or hopefully you'll want to look in your Bible and say, uh, does this make sense or what do I do with this? But I think this is one of the ways that we connect the dots between these situations in Scripture and God's character. And I want to make sure, I, I may have already missed, sorry guys, a couple of the, uh, the examples I wanted to mention. Maybe I'll miss them or maybe I'll see them here in a minute. Ah, they're coming up. Okay, I'll wait. Um, we tend to think 
And our culture uh, promotes this. We're Americans in the land of the free and the home of the brave. We stand on our own two feet. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We are rugged individualists. Individual being the key term. We believe in individual rights. Inalienable individual rights. Uh, You know, on one hand, this is good stuff because it recognizes uh, God's image, so to speak, in every human being as an individual. That's a good thing. Individual rights means someone can't take an individual and treat them as they want to apart from the law. You know what I mean. These things are good. We respect an individual. But I think uh, by a biblical standard, I think we have taken this thought about individualism to an unhealthy and unbiblical extreme so that we read stories that make no sense to us because we read them and we perceive them as people who believe in an ethic of individualism. And to that I say with John Dunn, no man is an island. And we fool ourselves to think that we appear in this world, on this planet, in this time, as somehow some free new creation apart from everything and everyone that went before us, lives next to us, or comes after us. This is unbiblical, uncritical thinking. We are more than individuals. Think about this. Your looks... And your personality comes from your parents. You didn't ask for it. You didn't earn it. There's nothing you can do about it. You get what you were dealt. You're the product of your parents. And they were the product of their parents. You have nothing to say about that. Your appearance is is determined by someone else, not you. The life you experience was shaped, is being shaped by the family you were raised in or are being raised in, by the country you live in, by the time in history you happen to live. All these things affect who you are and your experience of life. If you're born today into a wealthy family by no merit of your own, you experience a life of relative luxury and ease by no merit of your own. Conversely, if you're born into a family in poverty today, By no fault of your own, you experience privation and lack because of the place and the time you're born into. You and I are somewhat like individual links in a chain. You know, in a chain, there are individual links, and you can count them, and there they are. But every one of those links is linked to another one. So on one hand, they're individuals, but on the other, they're part of something larger than themselves, and they're connected to it. And they're connected both directions. They're connected to the chain going one way, and they're connected to the chain going the other way. So no link can say to another link, I'm not connected to you. And none of us can say in any ultimate sense, I am an island. We are connected, just as the clods are to Europe, we are connected to each other. And I think it's along this line that we fail to recognize something that the, bi- that the biblical record takes for granted. It is this interconnectedness with other people, typically the people we come from and the people that come from us, and the repercussions of those connections. This is going back to fair and just. Now, 
every one of us will stand ultimately before Christ and we'll give an account for the life we've lived and individually for the decisions we've made, the things we've done, the things we've chosen not to do. So in one sense, we'd say, uh, as an individual, we'll stand before God and be judged by God as an individual. But life on this earth is ruled in no small measure by who we're connected to as a group. When we read the Bible stories to our kids when they were small, we came up with this saying, the children get what the father gets. The children get what the father gets. In this story, Canaan got what Ham got. Ham was cursed or judged, and Canaan got the fallout. And he got it through, prophetically, through Noah speaking God's words about the future. Canaan got what his father got. And this was not unfair, ultimately. Think about this. When Israel goes into the land of Canaan and they take the city of Jericho, do you remember a man named Achan steals forbidden treasure from the city and he hides them? But God finds them out. Do you remember what happens to Achan? He's stoned to death by the nation, isn't he? Who else was stoned to death? His whole family. Did his family steal those things? text doesn't say so. Did his children, were they guilty of stealing those things? The text doesn't say so. Achan's whole family was stoned to death because of what Achan did. The family got what the father got. Think of this. In the Old Testament, King Saul tries to wipe out the tribe called the Kenites, whom Israel had made a covenant with. Later on, Saul's descendants, sons, are beheaded for Saul's sin. And by the way, if you read the story, you'll see that God was actually in this sense of justice because there was a plague that was going on that only this act of justice allayed. Now Saul's descendants, they didn't do the sin that Saul did. And yet, the repercussion of that sin was brought down literally on their heads. They got what the Father got. John Dunn got it right when he said we're not islands. And whatever we do with this, whether it's Noah pronouncing judgment on Canaan's descendants, or if it's Achan's family getting the judgment Achan incurred, or others. You'll see these, these stories throughout the scriptures. Somehow we've got to make that tie between God's justice and righteousness and what appears to us to be unfair. And I think part of the solution to this is that we are not islands and that we are connected to each other in ways that we typically don't recognize, most often would not want to recognize. But we're not islands, and what others do affects who and what we are and what we get, just as what we do will affect what other people are and what they get, which is huge. When I think of this, there's a Christian singer who has a song about uh, she wants to make decisions so that generations later will bless her because she understands that she will affect generations. Well, that's what's going on here. Ham 
affected his descendants for generations, literally for millennia to come. Negatively, just as Shem and Japheth affected their descendants for millennia to come, positively. Positively. So slice this up, dice it up, see what you think. I think this is part of the solution to what appears to us to be unfair is actually related to the fact that we are tied together with others in ways we generally don't think we are, in ways that carry on and affect generations. Let me close with this. The truth is, at the end of the day, we do not want God to be fair in any ultimate sense. That is, if God gave us what we deserve, we're in trouble, aren't we? If God is only fair, if He is only just, if He is only righteous, you and I are in trouble because God's justice leaves us condemned and dead. And you and I would be just like Adam and Eve, are like Adam and Eve. We live and then we're going to die, right? We'd be just like the people before the flood, wiped out in the flood, wouldn't we? We'd suffer under God's righteous judgment. We'd suffer sin and shame and death. That's where we'd be left. If God is only just, if He is only fair in that ultimate sense, we are in trouble. What we really want is mercy. And it was mercy that caused God to clothe Adam and Eve. And it was mercy that led Shem and Japheth to cover Father Noah. And it's mercy that led God to sacrifice His Son Jesus on the cross for our sins. I mean, think of that, the ultimate. Jesus paid for sins He didn't commit, right? He suffered the judgment for things He didn't do. That's not fair. And then you and I get the benefit. We get the righteousness of God in Christ, a righteousness we don't deserve. We didn't earn. We don't live up to. What's fair about that? This thing goes both ways. Jesus paid for sins He didn't commit. That's not fair. But it's mercy and it's just. And we get favor and grace and life that we didn't earn. But that's just and it's fair and it's right because Christ did. So the truth is at the end of the day, we don't want fair. We want <coughs> mercy. And the beauty of this thing is today, by faith in Christ, you know, we are transferred out of one family into another, aren't we? So that if we are just born once... If all we've got are physical parents, then all we've inherited is sin and death, right? Because we reproduce what we are. We're sinners, we reproduce sinners. So if we have one birth, what the Father gets, what our fathers got, sin and death. That's what we get. But if we trust in Christ, we got a new birth, don't we? And you know what that means? We get a new father. And then we get what the new father has. And the new father has life and grace, and joy, and peace. So as Christians, again, we don't want fair. You know, we want this. We want, now we want to get what our new Father gives us. It is right at the end of the day. It is just, but it's not fair the way we tend to think fair is, either in the story of Noah or in Jesus' death on the cross. It is better than fair. It's better than just. It's better than righteous. It's merciful, and that's where we can hang our hat at the end of the day. Let's pray. 
Lord, it's hard to get a handle on one person's suffering uh, for the sin of another, and yet it happens every day. Uh, a person who breaks the law and goes to jail leaves a uh, wife and children in uh, poverty oftentimes. Uh, they didn't earn it, but it's what they got. Father, left with our natural birth only, we're in trouble. We would get sin and death only. Lord, thanks that in Eden you covered Adam and Eve with skins. Thanks for the example of Shem and Japheth covering the sin, the shame of Noah. And Lord, thanks that ultimately, most especially, you have fully covered our sin and shame in the blood of Christ on the cross. And that, Lord, through simple faith in Christ, we are transferred into a new family. We gain a new head, a new source of life. That in Christ, you're our Father. And what Christ gets, we get. And, Lord, we thank you now and forever that we get life and joy and freedom from sin and death because you're better than fair. And Christ has taken those sins that didn't belong to him to give us life and peace. Lord, we'll be singing your praise for this forever. In Jesus' name, amen.